Uh, so this is one of the crazy things we're going to talk about uh, this morning. This is not a, a program uh, that we're doing at our church. Uh, it is a culture change, and culture changes take a while. And uh, we're committed to the long haul on this. And uh, what I'm going to do this morning is kind of give a, a little bit of a big picture of what this looks like at Gateway and uh, why it might be a challenge for us. It might be a challenge for any church uh, in the United States and wherever Western culture pervades and uh, let you know about what we're going to do in the next uh, coming weeks and, and how you can fit in and so forth. So we wanted to take this time uh, and then uh, I'll explain to you more about logistically what is, what is happening, okay? So let's have a word of prayer and then we'll get going. Father, we're grateful for your love to us that is expressed supremely through the cross of Jesus Christ. And we thank you for calling us to the body of Christ, gifting us, pointing us into avenues of ministry, giving us relationships that we can build with one another in you, and then seeing you work not just in our lives individually, but also through our community uh, with one another as we learn the word together, as we commit to you in the, the sight of one another, under the accountability of one another. And we pray that you would help us to learn to do this in a way that pleases you. Father, there's so many things about our culture that are running against the grain of what you have told us to do in the New Testament. And we're born into this culture, so often not even realizing that we're learning uh, traits and habits that we have to unlearn in order to function in the body of Christ. And I pray that you would give us wisdom to know what those things are and to always be willing to adjust so that we are following what you have given us in the word. And we'll give you the praise for the way you continue uh, to minister to us. And I pray that you would be with our leadership in all of these decisions that we're making. Uh, be with uh, Brother Mike in particular as he has been thrown the task of working out things logistically. And I just pray that you give him great wisdom and insight. And I pray that you would lead our uh, church body to make the kinds of decisions that we need to make on an individual level uh, so that we can function together as one body. And we'll give you the praise for all these things, asking you for your blessing in Christ's name. Amen. We are beginning a time in the life of our church that I hope will continue forever uh, until Christ returns, of not just saying, let's be accountable to one another, uh, let's make sure we're building relationships, but being able to identify what those relationships are and having a long-term commitment in which we build trust and accountability on an individual level. The text that I'm preaching from James 5 today as we near the end of our series in James actually has uh, the phrase, confess your faults to one another and pray for one another, you might be healed. And uh, you can already guess I'm not going to get to that verse by the time we're finished this morning uh, with the sermon, Lord willing, next week. Uh, but I have never read that verse uh, in, in, in being aware of the New Testament context, thinking that that means uh, we're supposed to have an open mic time and everybody gets up and just you know airs their dirty laundry in front of uh, everybody. There may be a time in the body of Christ where a sin is committed against a group of people where that is 
uh, necessary to do. But on a normal basis, uh, it means that with those whom we have the contact with in the body, we should be open about the fact that, hey, we haven't arrived. Uh, God is still working in our life. We're still struggling here. And we need to find those individuals with whom we can share uh, our walk with. And we know that people are directly praying for us in areas that we might not want to share with the whole body of Christ. And that is okay. I, I don't know that the church ever did that kind of thing in any culture where everything was kept open in front of everybody. There are sometimes some very private things uh, that we have uh, that we walk through. Uh, and, and it's really important as the scripture pushes us in this direction to have at least a, a person and maybe a couple of people who are praying uh, for us and, and helping us along the way individually. Well, this is all part of what we're trying to do in connecting ourselves in discipleship relationships. And I'm not going to describe this for those of you who are maybe guests here this morning because we've been talking about this for quite a while, so most everybody knows what, what we're talking about here. But what I want to do is talk a little bit about how the culture that we're living in really pushes back on us. When we step out and try to do this kind of thing, uh, we, it's, it's not intuitive anymore if we've grown up and have just swam in this culture that we're in, in the United States, and again, in wherever Western uh, culture pervades. And I want to start by looking at Psalm 78, verses 1 through 7. I'm going to just give you some scripture anchor points here in my comments. In, in Psalm 78, what the psalmist is doing is really fleshing out uh, Deuteronomy 6, where God says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one Lord, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then he says, These words I'm teaching you today, you should teach them to their children uh, when you walk in the way and, and, and so forth. You know, you're familiar with that text. And the idea in, in Deuteronomy 6 is all this law that God has given you, Moses is telling them this before they go into the land. Uh, he wants that doctrine shared from one generation to the next. And this is how we're going to do it, he says. And there's some wonderful passages in Deuteronomy 6. I love the part where it says when you get into Egypt and you're there and you're, you're blessed with this bounty and your son says, Dad, why are we keeping all these laws? What's up with these commandments? Why are we doing all this stuff? Why do we do these rituals? You tell him, we were slaves in Egypt, and God brought us out, and, and this is what he's asked us to do, and it's, it's a wonderful thing. And because Israel failed in making the connection, in passing along from one person to the next, one generation to the next, not just the law of God, but the works of God, not just what he said to do, but what he has done for them, Old Testament uh, it it uh, emphasizes both. Because of their failure, you see this cycle in the, in the nation of Israel all throughout the Old Testament. You all know what I'm talking about, where they, they're, all, they're always falling into the idolatry, and God judges them, and they cry out, and God rescues them. It happens again and again. You want to see this, this circle, uh, a lot of period in, in, a, in a short time of reading. Of course, look at the book of Judges, where you see this again and again and again. And after the, the time they fell into sin, it's always about 40 or 80 years, and they're back at it again after God rescues them, after they've repented. What is 40 or 80 years? One or two generations. 
And again, you, you fail to see passing along the life of Christ, the life of God within a person to the next person. Psalm 78 is a, a poetic expression of this pattern. And so he says, give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. When it talks about dark sayings and that sort of thing, it's not, like, it's, it's not talking about you know, bad stuff here. It's just saying these are, these, are, these, are, these are words of wisdom that God has given us. And, and they're, they're dark in the sense that they're not for everybody unless you're taught them, unless you embrace them, unless you believe them. And he says, we have heard them and known them. Why? Because our fathers have told us. It went from that generation to this. And so he says, we will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. Notice he's focused on the works of God here, not necessarily the words of God in, in this particular expression. And Old Testament has both. So he says, he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel. There are the words of God, which he commanded our fathers to teach their children, Deuteronomy 6, to the, that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children. You've got multiple generations in view here in this psalm. So that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. Somebody has said that you know if your parenting was successful if your grandchildren are walking with the Lord, not necessarily your children. And I know that's just one way of looking at it, and that might be a way to flesh out uh, biblical wisdom, but there's a lot of truth in that. And what he's saying in Psalm 78 is, just, is not measuring the success of Israel's uh, walk with the Lord in terms of what their generation is doing. They're looking three or four generations down the line, and they want to make sure that generation is following the Lord. Probably this is written from the, 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 the perspective of somebody who has seen the cycle again and again and again and does not want to keep repeating this. And so this is, from the very beginning, the way God has designed for truth to be shared from one generation to the next, from one family to the next, from one person to the next. And we see this pattern uh, throughout the scripture. We go to Acts 11, and it's interesting to me that you've got Saul, who's not yet Paul, okay? That happens in the middle of his first missionary journey. He's up uh, probably preaching the gospel somewhere north of Antioch, his, his uh, not Antioch, um, Tarsus, his, his hometown. And Antioch is to the south, we won't get the maps out in the back of our Bible. Most of you have a device you could pull up a map on, but we're not worried about that right now. Uh, but he's up there to the north, and, 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 and things are going gangbusters in Antioch because those who were scattered because of persecution, and this goes all the way back to Acts 8 when you see this, uh, they, they are spreading all over the empire. And some of them, verse 20, men of Cyprus and Serene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, who are Jews who have... Uh, are, are more immersed into Greek uh, culture, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. And the report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. 
So you get a little insight on some of the workings that are going on here. Some, some believers travel over to Antioch, which, by the way, is probably the second largest city in the ancient world at the time. It's not the word that rolls off our tongue when we think of ancient cities. We think of Ant, uh, Alexandria. We think of Rome, right? Uh, but, but it's kind of a toss-up between Alexandria and Antioch, which is the biggest city. So this was a huge place. And people start coming to Christ. And the church in Jerusalem, which is where the gospel began to spread, said we need to send somebody down there who's more experienced, who can organize the teaching. And so they send Barnabas so that he can exercise his gifts and help make sure these churches are being set up uh, and, and the, the truth is being taught correctly and so forth. So what does Barnabas do? Really interesting. He came and saw the grace of God and was glad and exhorted them to remain faithful uh, to the Lord with a steadfast purpose because he's a good man full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So, so Barnabas is, is looking at the successful ministry. But what does Barnabas do? He's like, you know what? We need to get Saul. Saul needs to be here too. There are a lot of things. This is, this is kind of reading a little between the lines in the New Testament, but in really studying the life of Saul, there are a lot of things that do not seem to be intuitive for Saul that he did that mimic the ministry of Jesus Christ. That he could have just known on his own. And a lot of Bible scholars think that this is where Saul learned ministry this year that's coming up. Barnabas goes to Tarsus to look for Saul. When he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. There's a lot going on here. But Saul is brought down, and he's working side by side with Barnabas. He's, he's learning ministry. One of the reasons we know they're learning ministry together is when, when uh, in, in Acts chapter 13, the Holy Spirit wants to send out the first mission team. He says, separate for me Saul and Barnabas and send them, and they went together. And it says in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. <clears throat> a lot of uh, historians think it's because of the visibility of this Christian community, and everybody saw them as saying the same thing, being of one accord, uh, speaking the same message. In fact, they might have even had the same place. There's a, uh, I've, I've been to Antioch one time, and up on a huge ridge overlooking the city, it's where everybody says the Christians would gather, and there's actually a cave church there that dates back almost, I mean, at least to the time of the Crusaders. It goes way back before that. Uh, and, and people were probably always saying, who are these people? They're always talking about this Christus. What, what should we call them? And, and, and they identified them en masse. They identified them as a community and called them Christians. Was it a term of derision? Were they complimenting them? A lot of debate about that. I think the most uh, important thing, though, is that they recognize there's a solidarity, there's a unity about what they're saying and what they're doing, which caused the community around them to have to call them something. And they settled on this name, Christians, and we're still using it today. So you see this kind of pattern throughout the New Testament. Paul says to Timothy, what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust to faithful people who will be able to teach others also. There's actually five generations or they're not necessarily generations, I'm using that word loosely now, but there's, there's at least five different people here represented. There's the Lord Jesus Christ uh, who uh, taught Paul, who then taught Timothy, who he said, find faithful people, literally. We have men often in our translations, but it's anthropos there. 
uh, people in general. Find faithful people who will be able to teach others also. I think the primary application of this text is that Timothy is set there, you know, to, to make sure pastors are being established in the churches. So men is not a bad translation uh, here. But I'm just calling attention to this pattern that you see all throughout Scripture of the fact that we're not just going to sit in our individual rooms and open a, a, a book and read it, although there's great spiritual value in that. But that's never where the Lord intends it to end. We have to be sharing it with one another. And I dare say there's some of you here in this church who may have, in a hotel room, grabbed a Gideon Bible, and you had heard the gospel before, and you read the Bible, and, and came to Christ that night, and nobody else was in the room. But that's a very rare testimony. Usually, it's a parent, or a pastor, or a friend. Somebody, individually, talked to you, maybe for a long time, over a period of time, and led you to faith in Jesus Christ. Even if that's not true, even if you have a more individualistic uh, testimony of salvation, uh, think of the numbers of people that God has brought into your life to disciple you and to grow you. The problem with that is that we, if we don't focus on discipleship in our churches, if we just think it's going to happen because if we just have enough activities, people rub shoulders, eventually this happens. Uh, we are never assured that it's actually happening. And I've heard lots of testimonies of, of people who said, you know, we went through a really dark time. We just didn't really have anybody that was walking with us. And I am always thinking, you know, if, if we just had this in place where, where there was already somebody identified that was walking through, we can at least make sure we're doing what the New Testament is asking us to do. So what we're doing what, that I call a culture change uh, is, is not some magic formula. It's not like, uh, oh, this church did this, it was very successful, let's just let's copy this program. Nothing like that at all. It's just a way of trying to say, this is what we see happening in the New Testament, so let's figure out a way to identify the fact that we're actually following this pattern so that we can make sure we're encouraging one another. This could mean parents discipling children. This could mean husbands discipling wives. Uh, this could mean older women teaching younger women. This could mean brothers in Christ uh, discipling other brothers in Christ, or, or at least you know, sharing their walk together and mutually encouraging one another. Uh, it, it could be a believer to an unbelieving friend that you are praying that God brings to salvation through the witness of meeting on a regular basis and saying, let's read the Bible together. Let's, let's talk about it. Let's learn it. Let's figure out what it says so that you have the opportunity to bring this person to Christ and then begin discipling them in uh, the Word of God. We've talked about this. We've shown patterns of this. We have material we're working on right now. Uh, uh, Chuck Bumgarner is my key editor right now. There's, there's actually an editing team. There's a publishing team. We, have, we actually have, we launched Gateway Press recently. That's what we called ourselves anyway. We have software. We have professional people working on this. Where do you see this? This is going to be phenomenal. Um, but so we've got through chapter seven that's edited, and I've got to catch up with him because I have to approve the edits uh, or, or whatever. Um, actually, it might be the other way around. Um, their edits probably better than my writing. But uh, we, we, this, is, this is being worked on. This is, this is going on right now uh, with, with a, um, something not only that we can work through and say, okay, I know this body of doctrine really well, but that we could take somebody else through uh, to show them exactly how to come to faith in Jesus Christ. 
So this is all in the works. But what I want to do is talk for a minute and sort of warn you about why there is this resistance sometimes in our spirit about doing what we see patterned for us in the New Testament. Collectivism is a term that describes a society. Uh, in some cultures, it is a, a collectivistic culture. It's the tendency to give priority to the group and to think about one's contribution to the good of the community. It's, especially if you go to Eastern cultures, which is, by the way, where the Bible comes from. It's an Eastern uh, culture. Uh, when, when, when decisions are made in the community, it's for the good of the community. And when you make a contribution to your family or your village or your community, you, you, there's a sense of pride there that you're helping the whole. And, and, and uh, conversely, if, if, you, if you do something to shame your family, then you're bringing shame on them in the eyes of the community. It's sort of an honor-shame kind of culture. But you don't think of what everybody's doing for you and how you're getting along and your individual needs and so forth. That's not the first thing that occurs to you, that you're going to dress differently, you know, or you're going to have your own style or, you know, whatever it is. You have your own vibe. You're just, you're not going to follow everybody else. That kind of thinking just isn't in that culture. They do everything for the good of the community. That's a collectivistic culture. And there's still collectivistic cultures uh, in in, uh, in the world. You don't usually find them in the United States, but you have the life of the individual thinking about what the group is doing. In the United States, that is not the way we think. We are an individualistic culture. Individualism is the tendency to value the individual over the group, thus giving priority to personal goals over group goals. College students go this, through this all the time. When uh, we have chapel at BJU, there's an announcement that gets, that's made. Uh, and, and, the, and the guy gets up and he, he's giving the announcement. Uh, and and uh, if he says, you know, this is for all graduating seniors. If you're not a graduating senior, click, the mind goes off. Okay, if you were listening anyway, you know, the, but the mind goes off and you don't have to, you know, worry about that because it doesn't pertain to you at all. What do you care about graduating seniors? You're, it's about you and your year. What, who cares about them, right? That's not the way, that's not the way we think. And, and if, if a decision is made and a, new, a rule is made or something is changed, uh, everybody's like, well, how does this impact me and what does this mean for me? Nobody's thinking, well, I know this is really helpful for everybody, so let's go along with it, you know? Somebody says, well, that that's might be a mature way to think, but that's not the way we, we're geared. We just, we're just not that way. It's not our fault. It's, this is the culture we're born into. But we need to be aware that this is the way we think. And I think if you start thinking this way, uh, that, or start trying to be self-aware of this, you'll see all kinds of ways in your life where, where you think about how it impacts you rather than it impacts the whole. I don't, I don't mean we never think of the whole. Of course we do. But think about the fact that the New Testament church is about the body of Christ. Uh, it's, it's about what we're doing for the whole. It, 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 we, are, we are a collectivistic kind of group if we are a one body. And so what we have to do sometimes is actually rebel in the right sense of that word. I don't mean picket, you know, and, and uh, you know, blow up, blow, up, blow up a building or whatever you do when you rebel today. Um, but I mean, you know, you have to say, I'm going to be different than this culture in this way. I'm, I'm going to try to think of the, the group over the individual. And there are a lot of different ways to apply that. But this is how America was formed. We came into this country this way. 
the whole idea of revolution was throwing off the collectivistic and becoming individualistic. And a lot of you uh, know that um, America very early on was a curiosity to the world for this reason. And I want to talk for just a minute about the rise of individualism in American religion. We'll, we'll look at it in, in, the, in the country in general in, for just a second, but I want to, I'm going to show you how this impacted religion in America as briefly as I can, okay? Uh, so a lot of you are familiar with Alexis de Tocqueville. He was the young historian that, that came over to America in the early 1800s because everybody was saying, what, what is going on over there? Why? What, what, we're hearing of this freedom, and, and people are doing these strange things. They're just kind of like, uh, you know, they're, they're throwing off all the old traditions and all of this. So he comes over and he studies the United States, and he's one of the, he's the guy, if you ever hear a quote from him, it's usually a very nice quote. Uh, he's the one that said, America is great because America is good. And if America ever ceases to be good, America will cease to be great. I've heard that in so many different sermons growing up. And he said that, it's true. But there's a lot of other things he said, and, and some of them are not flattering. And I happen to have one unflattering one here. He says, he says, I see an innumerable multitude of men, alike and equal, constantly circling around in pursuit of petty and banal pleasures with which they glut their souls. He says, each of them withdrawn into himself is almost unaware of the fate of the rest. That's not collectivism, that's individualism. Mankind for him consists of his children and his personal friends. As for the rest of his fellow citizens, they are near enough, but he does not notice them. He touches them, but feels nothing. My biggest concern for church body life is that we learn the scripture very well and we learn to do things and we have activities and, and there's a lot of life going on and people are really happy, but yet we're, we're still touching one another but not feeling anything. And that's what happens when you don't have real relationships. We, we come, as you've probably heard the illustration, sort of in our bubble and it's about ourselves and our family and we, we bump around together, but are we really a family? Are we really one in Christ. And I'm just saying, as a self-awareness, we need to realize this is not the culture we're living in. And so we have to reverse our thinking in order to live out what the New Testament says we ought to do. I'll show you how this impacted uh, religion in America. Going back to Thomas Paine, who wrote, of course, The Age of Reason, he expressed very clearly the way a lot of people were thinking about religion in early colonial America. He says, I do not believe in the creed professed by the Jewish church, by the Roman church, by the Greek church, by the Turkish church, by the Protestant church, nor by any church that I know of. My own mind is my own church. I make it up for myself. What I think is right, that's right. He didn't believe in revelation of scripture because he said that's revelation to a person, an individual. And I don't know that I would accept the revelation like he did. It's fine for him, you know, but I'm going to make up my own mind. It's about me. It's about what I decide. And that's not just one person. He was expressing uh, the, the whole enlightenment project that came uh, through England and then came to Germany and then England got revival. So it didn't keep going there until much later. 
and Germany gave us most of it. Um, I, you know, we could take several Sundays. I could walk you through this. It's fascinating, but we're not going to talk about that. But just, we're picking this up in, in the trail hundreds of years after it has been developing. If you want to read a really good book on this subject, this is a fascinating read. Uh, Nathan O'Hatch, um, I can't remember. I think he might have been the president of Yale or one of those great big Ivy League schools. Uh, but a great, great historian. He wrote The Democratization of American Christianity. He, he traces this whole idea of the fact that a religion was so impacted by the individualism in the political realm and in every other area of human life. He said, in such a society, the elites could no longer claim to be adequate spokesmen for people in general. In other words, you couldn't just have somebody say, we know about government, we know about politics, we'll speak for the rest of you. In this climate, it took little creativity for some to begin to re-examining the social function of the clergy and to question the right of any order of men to claim authority to interpret God's word. If opinions about politics and society were no longer the monopoly of the few, why could not people begin to think for themselves in matters of religion? And by the way, this doesn't mean that the, the Scripture doesn't tell us to make sure we believe something for ourselves. This is not what the, the, the topic is here. But what he's saying is there, there is a drawdown that went on in our history in the 19th century where people started mistrusting those who had spent their lives training to preach and teach the Word of God. So they thought, you know what, anybody can do this. And, and that, that notion prevails especially today. People don't even think of somebody who went to school to study theology as really doing anything. If you went to be a doctor or a scientist, I mean, that's, you're, that's a big deal. But, you know, anybody, anybody can read the Bible, and your opinion is just as good as my opinion. That's really what's happening. Even, even, at, even at BJU, and there's different reasons for this, um, you know, the, the, the school, Bob Jones, was, was founded really about ministry and preaching and teaching. That was always at the forefront. But the argument is being made that why should the Bible department be given any more, you know, uh, recognition than any other department? We're all here on the same level uh, with, with, you know, these various degree programs. And that's a shift in the way of thinking uh, in the history of that school, but it reflects the same idea that we, we continue to see evolving. So one of the things that happens in this kind of culture is that every person becomes his own theologian. And you can see this in a lot of different ways. There's just some fascinating people that Nathan Hatch uh, studies in this volume. One of them is Lorenzo Dow, who you, you won't recognize any of these names probably unless you study 19th century religion, but these were like nationally known figures at the time. Lorenzo Dow was this guy who went around, people would swoon when he preached. I mean, it was, he was like this great big figure, larger than life kind of, kind of preacher. But he said, if all men are born equal and endowed with inalienable, inalienable rights by their creator, okay, notice the political uh, starting point there, uh, in, in the blessings of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, then there can be no just reason as a cause why he may or should not think and judge and act for himself in matters of religion, opinion, and private judgment. And, and he's expressing the transition that happened uh, during his day. Caleb Rich was another one of these guys you probably haven't heard of, but he was a big deal at the time. He said, this is how I, I, I studied to preach. I shut myself up chiefly in my chamber, read the scriptures, prayed to God to lead me into truth, and not 
suffer me to embrace error, and I think with an upright mind, I laid myself open to believe whatsoever the Lord had revealed. And, and that's it. Nobody has input. It's just whatever I'm studying in my mind. Abner Jones says, I took the Bible and that alone, and without consulting any individual or receiving sympathy from any living being, commenced a prayerful and careful examination of the sacred pages. He, he told the church community that he preached for, I will never be subject to one of your rules. But if you will give me the right hand as a brother and let me remain a free man just as I am, I should be glad. In other words, you don't have oversight over my ministry. You're not going to tell me what to preach. You're not going to tell me my theology is wrong. But, but if you'll say, yes, we'll give your, our blessing to your ministry, then, then I'll be glad for that, and I'll continue to preach. That was, that's the spirit uh, of the age. Lucy, I don't want to leave the ladies out. Uh, Lucy Smith was, was well known. I said in my heart that there was not then upon earth a religion which I sought, she couldn't find any expression that, that, that made sense to her religiously. I therefore determined to examine my Bible and taking Jesus and the disciples as my guide to endeavor to obtain from God that which man could neither give nor take away. Words, I'm going I'm I'm to find this on my own. Now, what happened uh, are a couple of things during, during the spirit of this time. Uh, the, one of them is the decentralization of religion. And, and one of the biggest ways to see that is the, the rise of the camp meeting. Now, uh, we, we, the camp meetings are larger than the life in our mind, and we uh, exalt that time period, I know, historically, of a lot of people coming to faith in Christ and, and so forth. And there's, there's, a, there's a lot of craziness going on, too, okay, if we were to study that era. But there's a lot of good things that came out of it because, you know, at the end of the day, uh, we need to endeavor to do what God tells us in his word, and we should never lose that anchor point. But we will always not get it right somewhere. And God in his grace will often say, I'm going to bless that anyway, you know. Not because God is saying, you know, oh, he's trying hard. No, God's not sentimental at all. It's just that he will bless where we are surprised later on that God did something because he's God. And he's going to, that's the main thing he's going to keep in mind. We're going to be trusting him. But nevertheless, I could throw in a lot of caveats of what I'm going to say here. There's, there are some things that are not good about this period. Because the church started meaning little in people's minds. And, and once the camp meeting came in, everybody from all the churches around would come, and this is where they would have their, their big you know, religious expression was all together. And, and theology gets thinned out when this happens. And the community is about this big, uh, you know, this big crowd of people with which they're never really going to connect. The only time you can find that connection is within a local church where you can know people personally and individually. And if you have a huge church, which we do, we have churches with thousands of people these days. We have the mega church movement. Uh, the, the best mega churches are the ones that take the congregation and break them up into smaller churches. Essentially, what they're doing, they can call them life groups or whatever you want to call them. But if, if, essentially, they're just breaking them up into little flocks because they can't manage you can't manage a huge flock. You've got, to, you've got to manage, you have a little shepherd, a younger shepherd for, for the other flock. And, and this is the kind of thing that started happening. It got very popular, and it really has shaped religion. It has shaped fundamentalism. That's a whole other history. But there are things about fundamentalism, in it, political fundamentalism. The, the, the key idea of we want to use the Bible and the Bible alone to direct us, that's great. There's a lot of other things in political fundamentalism that actually pushed back against this collectivistic kind of idea. And, and a lot of people were like, I know this is right, and nobody's going to tell me what to do. 
That's individualism. And the third thing, and there's many more, but just the ones I wanted to point out, the notion of popular theology was on the rise. If you, if you stop the average American still today uh, and ask them about God, they're going to have a theology. A lot of them, they might not have even read the Bible, but they know enough about it to have an opinion of things. And uh, the most popular theology that is damning to people is the theology that, uh, you know, God's never going to send anybody to hell. He's just going to, or, or, or actually I should restate that, that, that God is going to, you know, look at my good works and my bad works when I get to heaven, and if my good works outweigh my bad, he's going he's gonna to welcome me in. And if not, I'm in trouble. That's, that's probably the, the, the most popular theology I've heard, the, the most common expression of it. But there's lots of different theological ideas about there. Um, there was a, uh, I, there was a verse in the Bible that I found out about when I pastored the church in Hendersonville, because that's more in the mountains. There's a lot of great theology up in the mountains. Um, apparently, if you have a nosebleed and you read this verse, it'll, your nosebleed will stop, you know. And people really believe that, you know. So I keep forgetting what it is. I, I need to go find out what that verse is again. But anyway, that, that's, a, that's an extreme example. But, but it's... it's they're theological ideas that no longer have an anchor point because, because we've gotten away from people coming together, studying the scripture together with a pastor or pastors in a church the way the New Testament sets it up so that we're walking with the Lord together, checking our ideas, being accountable to one another, even the people accountable to the pastor and the pastor accountable to the people. And there's a whole system that the scripture has given to us. It's a loose system because it can fit in a lot of different cultures, but it works itself out in the same basic way if you're following what it says. Now, here's what the challenges are for us then. Here's at, just at least three. We, we because of uh, individualism, are very independent, and we don't trust people naturally, and we struggle with loyalty. I think you've all heard the story of the Baptist who was stranded for 20 years on a deserted island and they finally rescued him. And they noticed there was more than one structure on the island and they said, well, what are those? And he said, well, that's my house and that's the church I attend. And, and he's by himself on the island. And they looked over and they see this, this building way off in the distance and say, well, what's that other building? He said, well, that's the church I used to attend. <laughs> you know, <laughs> because that's the Baptist thing, right? Especially in Greenville, you know, uh, where you have a lot of different churches. And I am just as interested as a pastor in why people come as in why they leave. There could be good reasons uh, for both. But we're, in a, we're spoiled, especially in the East and the United States. I mean, if we don't like it, we'll just find somewhere else to go. And so, and, 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 and if we don't like something, it's because we usually have this very independent spirit. It's got to be this way about these particular things. And if it's not, I'm not going to stick around and try to work this out. Uh, with people and learn from that system. I'm just going to go somewhere where I'm already, you know, I already fit in. And th we think that way. And, and, and again, I, I could throw in lots of caveats here. There are times when a church goes a certain direction where you say, you know what, I need to go somewhere else. I don't agree theologically, et cetera. But there are also times when we need to say, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to love these people. I'm going to work with them. I'm going to be accountable and, and so forth. But we're very independent, and, and we have to learn to trust people. One of the reasons we say the discipleship relationship needs to be ongoing, and we don't say, okay, I'll be your discipleship partner for this year, and then I'll find another one, is because you need to build that trust. And you can't keep adding people to the group, because as soon as you add somebody, the trust factor, the general trust factor goes down, you got to build that up again. 
you need to be able uh, to learn to share certain things. There's, and there's, nobody can tell you you can share this level of privacy at this particular time. It's all going to be totally up to the people in the group. And you may never go very, very deep with somebody. I don't, I, the Lord's going to use it in different ways in your life. But I want you to realize, if, if you sense this struggle, yeah, you know, I don't know if I want to do that. I, I'm, I'm a little uncomfortable with this. I want you to realize it's, it's not your fault, okay? This is the way we're geared in our culture. But knowing that, if we're convinced that the New Testament is pointing us in a certain direction to have these kinds of relationships, we need to say, oh, you know what? I'm going to set that aside, and I'm just going to follow this. I'm just going to trust this. I'm going to get into a relationship with somebody uh, one other person, maybe two other people. We're going to meet. We're just going to meet. We're just going to read the stuff. We'll talk together. We'll just see where the Lord takes it. And let the Lord, over time, build those relationships as we simply commit ourselves uh, to what is happening. So over the next couple of weeks, uh, I don't have time to go through this now, sorry. Uh, it would just be more convincing you of what I'm saying is true, okay? So um, uh, I, let, me, let me tell you about the, the phases here that we're going through. Th this is, in the discipleship meetings, uh, phase one uh, is learning, phase two is growing, phase three is sharing. What is learning? Learning is what we're going to do right now. Uh, we're talking about this some more. We're going to take a few, how, how many, Don? Is it two or three? Three? Okay, the next three weeks, um, if, if you have an identifiable person or a couple of people, we're going to make this time available during the Sunday school time for you to meet together. If you're teaching somewhere else, you don't have a relationship yet, and, or you're like, you know what, I, I want to do this, I kind of want to wait and see how it's going first. I want to I kind of look from a distance. That's fine, okay? Nobody is pushing you into this whatsoever. Um, for those of you who are not involved, for whatever reason, we're going to have a, a Sunday school uh, class here in this room, but we want for the rest of you to have the opportunity to meet with your partner and begin uh, working together. When you show up next week, uh, there's going to be a, a little card or half sheet that you're going to get that's going to say, here's what I want you to do today, and walk through just meeting one another, talking with one another, sharing with one another, and starting to build that relationship. And there's going to be something you're doing over the next few weeks to sort of kickstart this, okay? And then after phase one, there's going to be other times that we give you in order to meet, or you can find your own time. I'll talk about that in just a second. But the growing stage is going to happen when we get the material into your hands, uh, which we knew is not going to happen. We're, we, we decided to go ahead and start doing this this fall, even though we, did, we knew the materials wouldn't be Ready? I think, I think the deadline we've given ourselves is the beginning of next year, like January 1st, we're going to have this all printed. Uh, Mike's going to sneak into the press at night and print them on the million-dollar copier, or the $10 million copier. No, we joke about that. Um, but, but in other words, we're going to learn how to do this. We're going to grow together. There's going to be times in a Sunday afternoon service or maybe sometimes before we start the service on Sunday morning, we're going to say, you know what, I want to I hear a couple testimonies from some of you who've been meeting how has the Lord been using this in your life? I want you to share that with people. I want us to grow together into this idea. Uh, and then uh, phase three is sharing, that sharing with people outside your group. One of the things that happens in groups like this is that you are always praying about somebody that you're trying to talk to who is not a believer to lead them to faith in Christ. And sometimes groups will split off because one of them will say, you know what, I'm going to take the time now to disciple this new believer. 
and uh, whole churches have been planted by people just making this commitment uh, uh, to do this kind of thing. That's in phase three. That's in sharing. That can happen at any time, but we'll be talking more about that as we get used to just doing this by ourselves and then letting the Lord use it in the way that he can. Um, When you meet, uh, I'm I'm looking at the clock here. I'm over time, so I need to keep going. Uh, Next week, uh, there will be certain things that you'll, you'll be learning to do on a normal basis, which is simply praying together, uh, asking about each other's walk with Christ, uh, asking, you know, what have you been reading your Bible? What did you think about the sermons recently? What have you been learning, etc.? Encouraging one another. And this can take many different shapes. Depends on your relationship. Depends on what you share. Depends on what you, what you say pray for me about. And you're meeting, you're talking about that together. That will be a lot clearer when I give you some specific directions. Here are some ways that you can have uh, this particular meeting. Sorry about that. Um, so the last slide here, uh, I'm sorry I'm, I'm hurrying some, some of these uh, points up here for time's sake, but it's all going to be very apparent to you when you show up and just do it. They'll, this will be repeated. Um, but we're going to do the study school startup. That's the three-week uh, thing, and some of you will be in here. Others of you will be in your groups. If you're not in a group yet, and you're like, you know, I wanted to do this, I didn't put my name, I didn't do the sign up, whatever, that's fine. Uh, We're using this week to get some of those groups settled. We haven't even helped put all of them together yet. That's what Mike and I are talking about that we're trying to get done this week, uh, running up till Sunday. So there's still time to do this. So just let one of us know, and we we can help with that. On a normal basis, though, you can find a time every other week to meet with your group or your partner, but we're also going to make it a regular thing in the life of the body that on Wednesday night, if you're used to coming on Wednesday night, you've got a chance uh, to meet. And here's what we're going to do. Uh, you'll all, we'll all start in here, and we'll, we'll, do the, we'll do the beginning the same way, the same pattern every time. You know, hi, everybody, welcome, normal. Uh, Somebody's going to read a scripture passage and pray according to the scripture passage. Then we'll have the congregation sing our song in response to that truth. Uh, We'll take some prayer requests right away so that everybody hears them. Then we'll dismiss. If you're not in a group because you meet at some other time or you haven't found a group yet or whatever it is, uh, prayer meeting will continue the way it normally uh, continues. If if you're in a group, you're dismissed to go off and pray with your partner or your, your small group uh, and, and, and have that meeting so you're still connected with the body life here, but you're also uh, walking with somebody individually. And we're going to try that for a while. Here's, what, here's the beauty of that. Some of, some of you are like, uh, you know, we have, we have nursery on Wednesday night, and thankfully, I'm so thankful to those who, who uh, put that together for us. But sometimes it's difficult to have young children there and this way, you could say, you know, honey, you, you do it this week. I'll do it next week. I'll stay home with the kids this week. You go next week. Or I'll, I'll watch the kids in prayer meeting this week. You do it next week. There's a way you can work that out. Some of you might say, we want to meet every single week. That's fine with me, okay? Um, I'm suggesting every other week is a, is a good pattern. Uh, but you can do it every week. It's, it's up to you. And then uh, third, of course, are individual times. You can work out with your own group. Here's when we're going to meet. Here's when works really good for us. And, and we'll do whatever we can to make that uh, possible. So that's what we'll do with the, with the meeting times, all right? So uh, the takeaway here 
is one, think about the fact that, okay, if I, if I feel like, oh, I don't know if this, I can do this, this is a little scary or whatever, that's a very natural thing that we need to learn to do anyway based on what we have inherited in our culture. Secondly, if you haven't said, you know what, I want to do this, let me or Mike know about this if you want to do it. If you want to start this coming Sunday, let us know. If you don't start this coming Sunday, that's fine. I'm, this is a long haul thing. This is a cultural shift. And over the course of the next years, I, I'm hoping to add uh, many people uh, into this. And there's, there's always time to jump on board. There's, you don't have to start with us uh, this next Sunday. Um, and then if, if, if nothing else, just pray about, you know, God, how do you want me to be involved in this? And uh, who is somebody that I would love to just be with on a regular basis and to share uh, my walk with the Lord, okay? All right, we don't have time for questions.